Sunday weekend, the weekend Christians across this country and around the world celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we are going back to the basics of some of the most fundamental and foundational things we need to understand about that great day when Jesus entered Jerusalem. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and welcome to Faith Is, the podcast where we try to grow in our confidence in God because we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we really do want to trust God. We really do need to trust God, and we need to understand what that means and how it affects our lives. And today, we're going to explore that idea of faith and confidence in God by looking at the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, what some of the ramifications of that story were and are, and then we're going to also then begin to prepare ourselves for the other events that unfold during what we call Holy Week. And so we're going to begin to take a look at not just the triumphal entry of Jesus, but also some things that we don't generally think about related to the death of Jesus and what that means and in particular, why was it Jesus that needed to die? So I'm glad you joined us. We're going to have a great time today. We're going to explore these great foundational things. And you know, some of us have concerns that the church remains true to what the Bible has always taught. We generally generally refer to that as remain orthodox in belief. In other words, we stay faithful to what the Bible has always taught, what followers of Jesus have always believed. And so we're going to focus on some of those things today so that we don't get caught up in other ideas that might lead us astray. And I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church with real people where we do all of the things that you do at your church. And we explore these ideas and we wrestle with them and God helps us. And we are so grateful for his help. And little by little, God helps us make better sense of the biblical story. And we're really delighted to spend this time with you. I'm so pleased that my church is willing for us to do this. And we really hope you get some benefit out of this. And we really hope it does help strengthen your confidence in God. Because in these days, when there seems to be so many things disappointing us, we need to remind ourselves that God does not disappoint and that we can trust him and we can have confidence in him. So let's take a look at this event in the Bible that we generally call the triumphal entry. We celebrate it with things like palm waving and certain songs that we sing on Sundays, songs generally characterized by use of the word Hosanna. And we sometimes have children march around waving palm branches. We sometimes pass out palm branches to people. Now we can do that pretty easily here in Florida because there are palm trees everywhere. I remember that was one of my kind of... Um, adjustments of surprises when I first came to Florida was the realization that, hey, wait a minute, we have palm trees and having a palm branch in the service was no big deal because just about everyone had a palm tree or three that we could trim branches off of and use for Palm Sunday service. So there's no shortage of palms here. You may live in an area where they don't have palm trees and you're going to have to figure out how to do that in a different way don't sweat it. That's fine. It's not diminished by whether or not you have palm branches in your service. But let's take a look at the story. I want to read the story from Luke chapter 19. This is Luke's account of the triumphal entry. 
and it picks it up in the middle of chapter 19 and starts with verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and the he here is referring to Jesus. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told them, or told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He, again referring to Jesus, he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And so we have Luke's telling of the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. It's quite a fascinating story. It's, it's one we celebrate every year without fail because of its significance in introducing Holy Week. But let's take a look at what's going on here so we can begin to understand. Now, Jesus had been ordering his life to take him to Jerusalem at just this time, and we can see that from other evidence in the Scripture that he realized that he needed to be in Jerusalem because this is where it was, it was necessary for him to die. And so he had begun moving in that direction. And so the introduction to the story is pretty simple, that Jesus is, is going up to Jerusalem. And when they say going up, that's an elevation reference, because Ju Jerusalem had a little higher elevation. And so he came near to two towns identified as Bethpage and Bethany. Well, we know where Bethany was. The other town has been lost to history. We're not quite sure where it was. But it was on the far side of the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is that ridge that travels north and south, just east of Jerusalem. You go down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, the city. It's a very familiar geographic location in the Gospels because a lot of things happened there, including this idea of the triumphal entry. To be sure, when we say Mount of Olives, we're not talking about a mountain in the way that you and I might think of it. We're not talking about a mountain like perhaps the Rocky Mountains or the Smoky Mountains. We're talking about more of a raised ridge that traveled north and south. To be sure, it was a high elevation, and you could look across the valley, and you could, in some respects, look down into the city of Jerusalem. I remember when I visited Israel, that was one of the most striking things that I remember. I didn't realize, and I don't know if I was tired or just not paying attention or overwhelmed by all the things we had seen, but the day that we got to the top of the Mount of Olives and got out of the bus and walked over to where we could see across the Kidron Valley down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley, and then we could see the city of Jerusalem and the walls and the gate that had been closed, the steps where Jesus would have walked up into the temple, a lot of things you could see from there. And I remember it was just such a striking sight, and I was amazed that I was seeing it 
for myself because I'd seen pictures of it so many times. So, and, and this truly was, and we walked down the path, the same path that had been there for centuries, the same path that Jesus would have walked down when he entered the city of Jerusalem on that Sunday we call Palm Sunday. So it's really quite a striking place. So picking up the story, they were on the far side of the Mount of Olives, and he sent two disciples ahead to the village, doesn't identify the village, but to a nearby village. And he tells them, you'll find a young donkey tied there. No one has ever ridden that donkey, and you are to untie it and, and bring it to me. And, and that's a rather striking thing to us. I mean, they really just walk up and take someone else's donkey. Well, Jesus said, if they ask you, just tell them the Lord needs it. And sure enough, it happened that way. When they got there, they found the donkey as expected, and they were asked why they were untying it, and they replied, the Lord needs it, and they took the donkey on their way. Now, before we go any farther, let's, let's clarify that a little bit. For one thing, some people might say, well, Jesus was stealing a, a ride, stealing a donkey. And we frown on that sort of thing, and we do frown on stealing. The Bible frowns on stealing. We don't steal. But what's going on here was not theft at all. It was a type of borrowing that was common in those days. Angaria, it was called. And it was customary to allow the impressment of animals for service to a significant figure. Or we might say the borrowing of animals to serve a significant figure. So Jesus when he identifies himself and says to the disciples, tell them the Lord needs it, he was identifying himself as a significant figure. And according to custom, the owners of that donkey would have allowed the borrowing of that donkey to be used by Jesus. They expected to get it back, and indeed we expect they did. The details of that side of the story are not given to us here in Luke, but that was the idea behind it. It wasn't Jesus stealing a donkey out from under the owners. It wasn't that at all. It was simply the recognized custom that they honored and allowed Jesus to use the donkey. So let's not get distracted by some of those kinds of things that people want to kind of throw stones at the Bible. It, it wasn't that way at all. It was the idea that it was available to a significant person, and the custom was that owners of, of donkeys would allow them to be used otherwise. So then it says that, that the disciples took, took the donkey back and and they put their clothes on the donkey, made a kind of uh, saddle, I guess you'd say, or seat just pr protecting either Jesus or the donkey or both. And then they helped Jesus get on the donkey, and he began to ride into the city of Jerusalem, or more accurately, at this point in the story, began to ride down the slope of the Mount of Olives toward the Kidron Valley, and then would continue on across into Jerusalem. Well, as he did that, they spread their clothes on the road, uh, it doesn't mention here specifically palm branches. We get that idea from other places, but that was a customary thing to do when welcoming a king to your town, to your city. Now, you might say, well, this doesn't look very kingly. What's going on here? Jesus is riding a donkey, and, and why is he not riding some enormous, impressive, larger animal that looks like the the animal of a, of a conquering ruler or something like that. Why is he coming in this simple manner? Well, keep in mind that this was a very specific animal that Jesus chose for a very specific reason. And that traces back to the Old Testament and to the practice of God's people, Israel, 
of welcoming their kings into their city on the royal coronation beast, which was a donkey. That's what they considered appropriate for that. Now, some people will say, well, Jesus chose a donkey because it's his humility. He didn't want to put on a big kerfluffle, as you might say, for entering into Jerusalem. He was a humble guy, and so he appeared on a humble donkey. Well, maybe, but more than that, if you go back and you examine the the history of God's people, particularly the transition from David to Solomon, you will discover that David, when he was near death, finally made the decision and announced to people and gave instructions that Solomon was to assume the throne and to be crowned king in his place. And one of the indicators of that was David gave instructions that his donkey should be used to usher Solomon into the city. And so by using that beast, that royal coronation beast is set Solomon apart as the king. So in a similar fashion, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding the same way that God's people would have expected their king to come on a donkey. So it's very consistent with what was going on, very consistent with what they would have expected. Now, another thing that we want to make sure we don't make a mistake on is to not confuse the triumphal entry of Jesus with a Roman triumph. The triumphal entry of Jesus is just as described in Luke. It's no more elaborate than that, but absolutely significant. Just because it was a relatively simple affair doesn't mean it wasn't significant. It was very significant. Now, a Roman triumph, you may have heard of those, maybe not, but a Roman triumph was a very different type of celebration. In the days of Rome, when the generals went out to do battle on Rome's behalf, they worked very hard to be victorious and to to capture a lot of treasure for Rome. The treasure could be artifacts like artwork, could be gold, could be anything that was of value to Rome, could be weapons of war, could be all of those kinds of things, and they captured that treasure for Rome. Well, once they had gotten to a certain level of success, once they had had significant victories, you might say, they all, they being the Roman generals, they all wanted to be awarded the honor of having a triumph. Now, a triumph was a very elaborate parade and celebration of the general's accomplishments, and the general was the one honored by the Roman triumph. So, They would go to great lengths to prepare for that, and they would parade into the city of Rome all of their captured treasure, all of the artwork, all of the weapons, all of the gold, all of the silver, whatever was of value. It could have been um, uh, utensils, could have been any kinds of things that, that Rome captured for their use and made a part of their treasure. So they paraded all of that in from the outskirts of the city into the town, to into the city of Rome. They included in that the military hardware they would have captured. They included in that the soldiers they captured. They included in that all the other people they captured who were now subject to Rome and who would be Roman slaves. And so they were destined to be sold into slavery, some of them destined to be executed at the end of the parade. It it was quite a thing. And last in the parade, the the Roman general was was hailed and, and brought in as this great conqueror, and he was honored because the triumph was in his honor because he was the victorious general. So it was quite, a, it was quite an affair, 
and it was quite eagerly sought out by Roman generals. They all wanted to have a triumph. Well, Jesus' triumphal entry was not a Roman triumph, and we should not make any comparisons. We just have to recognize that they were two different things and accomplish different purposes and not confuse them and not wonder, not make the mistake of wondering, well, why didn't Jesus ride on a more noble animal when he rode into Jerusalem? Why the simple donkey? The simple donkey was because that was the royal coronation beast. When a person rode in on that royal coronation beast, they were riding in as king. And so Jesus was arriving as king, and the people recognized that. They knew that. So they welcome Jesus in. The whole crowd is praising God quite loudly for the miracles they had seen, for all the things. And then they, they honor Jesus with a quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And so we often sing those texts, not necessarily in the words I read from the Christian Standard Bible, but similar statements that reflect that idea. We sing those texts, those are part of it, and, and the reason that's significant is because that psalm points out that Jesus is coming as Messiah and King, and so that psalm has connections to the expected arrival of Messiah, and by referencing Psalm 118 and that statement, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, that crowd is honoring Jesus as Messiah and King. You also notice there's a little line in there that says, glory in the highest heavens. Well, in those days, they believed heaven had multiple levels, and so that's a reference to the highest of the highest in heaven, and so that's why they referred to it as highest heaven. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's gotten his royal coronation beast to carry him in. He's at the top of the Mount of Olives. He goes down the road, and all of his disciples are praising him. A lot of attention is given to his arrival, and it attracts the attention of some Pharisees who are described as being in the crowd. Now, we don't know when the Pharisees joined the crowd. We don't know where they were, but we do know that all of the attention given to Jesus causes a reaction on their part, and so they say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, that implies that Jesus was the, the one the people were following. He was a, a rabbi of those days, similar to other rabbis, and he would have had followers who were following his example and learning from him. And so it wouldn't be surprising that if the rabbi needed to correct the people, he could do that. And so they are saying to Jesus, you need to correct your people. You need to rebuke them. Now, that's a curious statement. Why would the Pharisees be interested in having Jesus rebuke the people who were honoring him as Messiah and King? Now, let's not jump to too many conclusions about Pharisees. Let's just consider these two ideas. And, and one of them is positive, and one of them you might think of as not quite as positive. But let's think of two possibilities here. For one reason, the Pharisees might have been afraid that all of the noise and all of the celebration and all of the recognition as Jesus as king entering Jerusalem might attract Roman attention, and that wouldn't be good. The Pharisees would not have wanted the Romans to be paying attention because that would have not been a good thing. Nobody wanted to stir up Rome and get them involved in those things because 
the Roman occupiers of that day could be absolutely brutal and they didn't want any trouble with the Roman occupiers. Second thing is possible, and we don't know, but it could be that because the decision had been made earlier, and you can read that in the New Testament, the decision had been made earlier that Jesus needed to die, it could be that they were making an attempt to keep Jesus from fulfilling his mission and making an attempt to keep Jesus' popularity from from rising so that they would not be able to later kill him. So it could have a positive effect. Let's not get Rome involved because we don't want their unwanted attention where they might come in with their troops and, and people might be killed or injured. And maybe the other side of it was, and maybe parallel to that was, they didn't really want Jesus to fulfill his mission and accomplish his work as Messiah. So then Jesus says, in response to their admonition, hey, rebuke your disciples, Jesus says something very interesting. Uh, I just love it. He says, I tell you, if they, referring to his disciples, if they, my disciples, were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And and I, and my previous work years ago as a music director, we would sing songs about that. And I remember that's just such a fascinating, such a fascinating statement by Jesus that that if my disciples, if all of these people remain quiet, then the stones will actually cry out. And, and I don't know how that would work, but you know, part of me would like to see what that would be like. And, and part of me wishes Jesus had had them be quiet so we could find out what it was like for the stones to cry out. But, but maybe Jesus is just using a figure of speech there and helping us understand some things. Now, one of the questions that that I think we should wrestle with, and I don't know as far as I can tell that we have a definitive answer. I have always thought that because it was a rocky terrain that he was going down the Mount of Olives, that when Jesus said that, he was referring to the stones that would have been along the path, maybe either small or large, as though they would cry out as he passed by. And it could be. Again, it's not identified. As far as I've been able to tell, we don't know what stones Jesus was referring to. But we do know that as he went down the path, down the path on the slope of the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, into the temple area, we do know that the temple stones were there and they were magnificent. And we wonder sometimes, was Jesus referring to the temple stones that they would cry out? For the temple stones stood as a testimony to what God was doing for people and among his people. And the temple certainly was a vehicle God used to point to the coming of Messiah. So I wonder, could it have been those magnificent temple stones that Jesus referred to that they would cry out? No matter which stones he had in mind, one of the most interesting things is that by Jesus referencing the stones crying out, he was essentially saying, fellas, even creation understands that I am Messiah and I am king. And even the creation will cry out to honor me. So I can't keep these people silent because everything that I've created everywhere recognizes that I am Messiah and King. It's really quite a fascinating way to end that introduction into the Jesus entering the city. And then, of course, the weeks, the, the events of Holy Week unfold from there. And we get a glimpse of some of the other things that took place that Jesus was involved in. Now, we're not going to talk about all of them, but I do want us to begin to think about now, and in a minute, we'll take a break and, and we'll get into it in more detail. But I want us to begin to think about the significance 
of Jesus and the role he is about to play during what we call Holy Week. So we know Jesus goes into the city on what we call Palm Sunday. One of the Gospels talks about how he went into the temple and he looked around and then he left. We're pretty sure that during these days, Jesus would go into the city and then spend some time there and then go back to Bethany and stay in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It wasn't far to walk, and it was easy for him to, to manage his location so that he wasn't in a place that he could be surprised by capture prematurely. So he would go into the city, and then he would leave at night. So we know he went into the city on Palm Sunday. We know he looked around. Another day he went in, and that's when we see the event of what we call the cleansing of the temple. That was a pivotal and important event in the life of Jesus. We're not going to get into that, but it's very interesting to study that. And it's not at all what some people say. So let me just tell you this a little bit. It's not at all about buying and selling in the church. It's not that at all. There, that, that has often been the interpretation, and there's no evidence in any of the historical documents or the New Testament that that was the problem. It was a totally different problem. And so maybe you want to go read that story and find out what the, what the problem really was there. But anyway, he went in and he did, he did the, the cleansing of the temple and conducted himself through the week. And then finally, on the eve of Passover, he had what we call the Last Supper. He gathered his disciples in the upper room, and they had Passover together. And Jesus introduced the idea of what we call Holy Communion, some people call Eucharist. It goes sometimes by other names, often the Lord's Supper where they sat and they celebrated the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus transformed a portion of that Passover meal that, that had a ritual celebration associated with it. He transformed some of that by taking the bread and the cup of wine and making it into what we call Holy Communion. This is my body. This is my blood. And from that on, from that time on, we've been celebrating Holy Communion regularly because we remember Jesus, remember his death until he comes. He was saying this is a very significant thing that's about to happen. Okay, so so on that night, they then leave the upper room. They walk back across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus spends some time with his disciples, where he goes alone to pray and he talks to his disciples about can you watch with me one hour? And they fall asleep. Jesus goes and prays. He wrestles with what's before him and finally says to God, not my will, but yours be done. He returns to find his disciples asleep, wakes them up, says that the time has come. Moments later, a short time later, as the Bible describes it, they arrive to arrest him and take him away for trial. Trial starts with a Jewish trial by the Jewish leaders. They recognize what he has done, but they can't do anything about it. They believe he's worthy of death, deserves death. They don't have the authority to put someone to death. So they turn him over to Pilate, who examines him, finds no fault in him, but caves in to the political pressure of the day and agrees to allow Jesus to be taken away, to be beaten in preparation for crucifixion, and then later taken out and crucified. That brings us to the point that we want to talk about in the next portion of the, of the program today. Why was Jesus the one that came as a sacrifice for sin? Now, there are many answers to this, and I'm not 
suggesting that what I want to talk to us about after the break is the one and only answer. I think it is a very helpful explanation. And maybe I think that because it helps me, but because it helps me, I'm hoping it'll help you. I recognize that many people have explained it this way or that way. And, and I can't say that they're wrong. Um, there might be some explanations that I would say are wrong, but by and large, when we say Jesus came because it was God's intention to free people from sin. And so God sent Jesus who was sinless to die for sin. I get all that. And all those explanations make sense. It's just, I kept asking myself why specifically Jesus was qualified. Yes, I understand the sinlessness. Yes, I understand he took our place. Yes, I get what I've always heard, but I was thinking about that. And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, we need to get back to basics. And maybe there's another way to think about the story of what God is doing in the world, and particularly in the person of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to talk about because I'm increasingly convinced, and I notice it in, in some of the books that scholars are writing, that we're more and more making connections between events in the scriptures, particularly between the, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're beginning to look and see that, that one really helps us understand the other better. For example, a good example of that is the royal coronation beast. Not a lot of people make the connection between David's assignment of that beast to Solomon and Jesus using that same transportation to go into Jerusalem. So we're going to connect some dots, tell a story, and try to help us understand why Jesus, what that significant was. So take a little break, get your Bible out, think about some things. We're going to talk about several different places. We're going to talk about the story of what God is up to in the world and why Jesus was the exact right person to come and die for sins. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll be back. Stay with us. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling or worse yet, <coughs> coughing. Flu, cold, and SARS-CoV-2 are everywhere. Would you like an additional layer of protection to reduce these threats with an invisible mask? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs that make us sick. Find a retailer near you or buy online at cofixrx.com. America Out Loud listeners use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications. America out loud talk radio. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. 
thanks so much for staying with us. I'm glad you're hanging in there as we go back to the basics this Palm Sunday weekend. And we're trying to understand some of the things that took place in a way that connects the, the understanding of the New Testament to what the Old Testament pointed out to us. And we did that with the royal coronation beast. And now I want us to take a little bit of a turn and begin to think about why did Jesus have to die? Now, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, and I suggested before we took the break that, that you may have an explanation for that, and you may have heard a bunch of explanations, and I'm not trying to take issue with them. I'm just simply saying, let's think about this possibility, because this really helps me understand what God has been up to in our world and how he is working to help you and I and all people. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we are pursuing understanding what God is saying to us so we can deepen our confidence in Him and trust Him more. So wrestle with that idea before I get into the suggestion of the answer that I, that I want us to think about today. Why did Jesus have to die? Okay, now why specifically was it Jesus? And, and what about this idea of death? Now, when I first began wrestling with this question in pre preparation for this weekend, the short answer I came up with was different than some of the people I've asked as I've been trying to work on this during this week. But the short answer I came up with was, why did Jesus have to die? Simple, one word, sin. Well, in many respects, that captures it for me because that's the problem Jesus' death solved, the problem of sin. And so let's explore that a little bit and see what's going on and what transpired. What about our understanding of the story of God from the Bible helps us understand that Jesus was the one that had to die? So one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is the story from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, creation story, and then particularly the story of Adam and Eve and what happened in the garden. You see, I think much of that story is, is given to us for its theological implications more than any, anything else. And so I want us to think about what happened in the Garden of Eden and how that affects, influenced, began the process of leading to Jesus being the one to die on the cross on what we call Good Friday. So you remember the story, God created the Garden of Eden, and he placed Adam and Eve there, and I'm going to simplify all of that, and it was a perfect place. They, they had everything they needed to live, to thrive. The only thing God said was, there's one tree. I provided all these things for you to eat, but there's one tree that you must not eat of. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So it always fascinates me that, that the whole world was available to Adam and Eve. Everything around there had been created just for them. They had been placed there because God knew that's what they needed, and he provided everything they needed. And he only said one thing, only one thing you can't do. You can't eat from this tree. And it's always gotten my attention that, sure enough, that's the tree they sought out, and they ended up eating from that. And it's also interesting that, that Genesis is very clear, the scriptures are clear, if you eat, then you will die. Well, in spite of the fact that they had everything they needed and then some, 
everything was provided, including a close relationship with God. They still went to the tree that was forbidden. They listened to the lie of the evil one, and they ate from that tree. And that is the pivotal event that we mark as the time that sin entered the world. Because Adam and Eve, on purpose, knowingly, willfully, did what God said, don't do. And that became the definition of sin, a willful transgression against the known law of God, is the way John Wesley put it. At that moment, sin entered the world and became part of the human condition. And we understand more about that as God unfolds the story later in the scripture. But that is the pivotal moment. And from that moment on, everything began to deteriorate in our world. Disease entered the world, destruction, death, all kinds of things began to happen. And from that moment on, the world began to deteriorate. Now, you can make a case that, that God saw what was happening. Then, of course, when it came to the story of Noah, he was upset by that. And he tried to, we might say, reset things by taking Noah and his family, who he identified as a righteous man, and putting them in the ark and, and destroying the world and starting over. It's it's in a similar way as we might think God pushed the reset button on the world, hoping that that would solve the problem. But we know, and God knew and discovered, and it was lived out that sin was a stowaway on the ark. And so that did not solve the problem. Well, God had determined he would solve the problem because we know that from his statements in Genesis chapter three. As time unfolded, God identified as a man named Abram to be his covenant partner. And it tells us in Genesis 15 that Abram believed God, and God counted that as righteousness. So here's Abram, a righteous man, and we often say call him Abraham, and, and I use the names interchangeably, except when I'm trying to be very specific, and even then I sometimes mess it up. Abram was his name before he entered into covenant with God. Abraham was his name after the covenant for a very specific reason, because often names were combined when two partners entered into covenant. And so Abraham and God were now covenant partners. So he was Abraham, no longer Abram. Well, Genesis 15 tells us a very interesting and by our sensibilities, unusual story of God coming along and instructing Abram to prepare for a covenant ceremony. So Abram goes and gets the animals for that ceremony. The animals are sacrificed and cut in a very specific way so that the, the inside of the animal is laid up for all to see. And part of the ceremony is where the covenant partners who are agreeing to a covenant walk through and between those sacrificed animals, two halves. It was called the walk of death, and they would agree that if they violated the terms of the covenant, that they were worthy of death, because it was a very, very strict and important agreement between them. Now, a curious thing happens uh, when this stage is all set and we understand what's about to take place. Curious thing happens that about the time that it's time for Abram and God to make their declaration to each other and to walk through what we call the walls of death, these two halves of the animal exposed as they were, God puts Abraham in a trance, we might say, or in a suspended state. It's as though he was awake and aware because he records what goes on, but he isn't able to participate. 
And some people have said God did that to Abram so he wouldn't mess things up, and maybe so. Well, anyway, what takes place now is two items, a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, pass between the, the dead animals, the two halves, and participate in the walk of death. Now, you can believe that was, um, that was God represented by two different things. You can believe that perhaps it is meant to signify God the Father and God the Son. I don't know that we can prove that, but we do know this, that God, by stepping in and taking part in that covenant ceremony and leaving Abram out, God is, is assuming the responsibility for that covenant on both sides. Curiously enough, God is saying, I will keep my side of the covenant, and I will assume responsibility for Abram's side of the covenant. Very interesting that God would do that. Well, one of the things that happened when two partners entered into covenant in ancient times was that they assumed each other's debts. So if, if two people, two men entered into covenant, and it was always men, entered into covenant, and one of them owed someone $5,000, it became both of their responsibility to pay off that $5,000. So when God takes part in this covenant ceremony, he is assuming full responsibility for resolving any issues related to the covenant. Or we could say he is assuming responsibility for the debts that Abram might incur. Abraham might incur Abraham because he participated and agreed to covenant with God. Well, also what we know about covenant is that covenants always had some terms to them, things that the, that the participants were expected to, to live up to. So God makes his promises to us, and those are terms of the covenant. God says, I will, and he lives up to those promises. That's part of the terms of the covenant. But God also says, here's what is expected of you. So he gave his people and this was some years later, what we call the law, what they called the law, what is often summarized by and thought of in terms of the Ten Commandments. It's a good short summary to help remind us that that's what we mean by the law that God gave. We might also say, well, the Bible is God's instruction book, and those are the, what's, what's in the Bible becomes the terms of the covenant, and that's true. Or we might say right and wrong, as God defines them, are terms of the covenant. Well, we know that when covenant partners enter into this agreement, that they pledge that if they violate the terms of the covenant, they are worthy to be treated the way the animal that was sacrificed was treated. In other words, they agree that if they violate the terms of the covenant, they are worthy of death. Now, that's a pretty strong thing, and it's not something we're particularly used to, but that is what they had in mind. Now, connect another dot now. So, so there, God takes responsibility for the covenant. He he substitutes for Abram there. He, by taking responsibility, assumes responsibility for all of the debts. We understand that a violation of the covenant results in death, and we know that sin or a willful transgression of the known law of God is a violation that leads to death because it's a violation of the terms of covenant. All right, so keep thinking. Now, God, because he was the only one that participated in the covenant ceremony, he kept Abram out. God assumed responsibility for all of the need to keep, to live up to the terms of the covenant, or we could say 
he assumed responsibility for the debts incurred when Abram and others violated the terms of the covenant or sinned. So God, by establishing the covenant the way he did, takes responsibility for our sin. Hmm. Now, what's he going to do about that? Well, clearly, because of the covenant, because of what God has said earlier in the scriptures, what he said to Adam and Eve, that if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. God, having taken responsibility, recognizes that the remedy for that is what has been agreed to. The remedy is death. That's what will satisfy the demands of the covenant. So God sends Jesus as a substitute on our side to handle the problem of the covenant violation. So Jesus substitutes for Abram, in a sense, during that covenant ceremony, and now God has sent Jesus into the world, the events we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus comes into the world because God says, I'm going to take responsibility for the sin of people that I agreed to when I established covenant with Abraham. And so Jesus entered this world as the substitute to live up to the terms of covenant and to accept the penalty for the terms of covenant. So when, when we see that, that Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sin, he is going as a substitute for the sins of people, because God says, I promised to take care of this back when I made covenant with Abram, and I'm going to live up to that. So Colossians tells us then that, that um, I'm sorry, not Colossians, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us that, that Jesus became sin for us. It's very interesting the way that verse says that, but it doesn't say uh, that Jesus assumed responsibility for the sins we committed. It says he became sin for us. Now, there's a couple ways we can think about sin. Usually, we think of sin as the acts that we commit, the things that we do, that we, maybe we steal, so that's sin. Well, that's one way to think of sin, and that's helpful because it reminds us that we should live right. Another way to think of sin, and it's, this is really helpful when we think of this because this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 refers to, is sin as the condition or state that results from these acts of sin. So Jesus became sin in the general and specific sense of that for us when he went to the cross. And so now there is a focus for resolving the problem of sin, because Jesus goes to the cross to die for the sin of the world. So sometimes when people talk about this idea of substitution, they, they think about the sacrifices from the Old Testament. And to be sure, that was the system God set up. And he said, these animals, these lambs, we often say that, that you need to bring as a sacrifice, they are paying the penalty, which goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you sin, you will die. They're paying the penalty for sin. And so they die in place of the person who offers the sacrifice. And so they die so that that person can be forgiven. And there's a whole elaborate way that the people of God lived that out to satisfy the fact that they violated the terms of covenant and consequently were, were easily eligible for the death penalty. So now Jesus comes as the substitute. 
He steps into that place on our behalf because he had stepped into that place by virtue of God putting Abraham on the shelf during the covenant-making ceremony. And so Jesus goes to the cross then as an atonement for sin, as a substitution for us. And you've heard that over and over, haven't you? That Jesus was the substitute for sin. And that's an explanation of what that means. He was the substitute for us, for all people, because God had taken responsibility for covenant way back in Genesis 15. And now, finally, as time had unfolded, it came time for Jesus to come into the world and assume that responsibility to then, in our place, go to the cross to suffer and die for sin. Now, when the Bible says Jesus became sin for us, it's a broader and more expansive attack by God on sin than simply the sins we commit. It includes those, to be sure, but it also includes the effect of sin. And remember, when sin entered the world with Adam and Eve, everything began to deteriorate. So Jesus became sin for us, goes to the cross, and dies. Now, one of the things that, that I want us to think about and clarify a little bit is that Sometimes people want to accuse God of, of all kinds of terrible things, and including uh, child abuse for sending Jesus to the cross. Well, that's, that's totally inadequate to think about what God was doing. The focus of God was not so much on Jesus as it was on sin, because when it says Jesus became sin for us, that's a clarifying understanding of the role Jesus was playing in the whole redemptive story. So when, when we talk about, and we sometimes do, we sometimes sing about it, that the wrath of God was satisfied, it means something more, I think, than a focus on that Jesus suffered. Truly, he did, and we shouldn't get away from that. One of the ways that I think about that is that the suffering of Jesus, the horror of crucifixion, demonstrates forever to all of heaven and all of earth just how much God thinks uh, about the harm of sin and how determined he is to act, to deal with it because Jesus became sin. So the wrath of God being satisfied was not so much focused on Jesus as it was on sin. It wasn't so much focused on people as it was on sin. You see, God interceded back in Genesis in, in Genesis chapter 15, and God took part and full responsibility for both sides of the covenant, his side and Abram's side. And so when Jesus comes as the sinless Lamb of God, he becomes sin for the world. And so the focus of the death of Jesus was that God was dealing with sin, so he didn't have to make people suffer for that. And so Jesus, when he died, his death becomes the satisfaction for the covenant violation, or what we sometimes say, his death atoned for sin. And because he satisfied the responsibilities from Abram's side of the covenant, from our side of the covenant, then he made provision for sin, sacrifice for sin, atonement for sin available to us, and he spared us the penalty for sin if we will only follow him. As a consequence, people did not need to die. In other words, Jesus reversed what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, or chapter 2, I guess it was, when he said 
that if you eat, you will surely die. Now Jesus, or God is saying in the person of Jesus, that Jesus has satisfied the concerns and the penalty for sin because Jesus died to satisfy that righteous requirement of the law and spare you from having to die because I, God, in the person of Jesus, took responsibility for that, and now people don't need to die. To me, that's a very helpful explanation, a very helpful connection to make between the covenant of Genesis 15 and the coming of Christ and his qualifying to be the one to represent all of humanity because he, in the person of God taking responsibility in Genesis 15, had always taken responsibility because God had said, I will take responsibility for keeping this covenant. And so Jesus, as substitute, took that responsibility. So it's really quite, quite fascinating. I've been thinking about that a lot. And one of the other things that's very helpful to me is to stop and step back and say, okay, what is God up to in the story of the Bible, in salvation history, in the history of his redemptive plan? What, what has God been up to? And, and we had our usual Wednesday night book study last night, and it, it occurred to me in the course of that conversation, that we were talking about some important things, that really in, in no small measure, God has been up to two things in the Bible. And the first one was that God has always determined to deal decisively with sin. And I don't know why I'd never seen this this way, and I'm probably not the first one to do it, but it really resonated with me that God determined that he would deal decisively with sin. That's why in Genesis, when God spoke to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, when he spoke to the serpent, he said that, that um, the serpent would bruise the heel, but that, that one would come that would crush his head. See, God knew all along that he would find a way to deal decisively with sin. Now, for a serpent to strike someone's heel is not a deadly blow necessarily. But for a serpent's head to be crushed is a deadly blow. So God was signaling, even from then, that he was going to deal decisively with sin. And the second thing that he determined that he would do is he would deliver people from sin, from the state of sin, from the effects of sin, from the penalty of sin. So when you step back and you look at the Bible, God's focus is on redeeming people and taking care of sin. God's focus isn't on punishing people as much as it's focused on taking care of sin so it's no longer a problem for people. And so when Jesus died, he solved the sin problem as the qualified substitute for us, satisfying the terms of the covenant which God had established between himself and Abram, and which all people became subject to. It was first carried in the the tribe of Israel, and that's why the story finds its completion in Jesus coming to Israel, but it was later extended and opened to all of us, and Jesus kept all of us from having to pay the penalty of death. And so you see, when we read that familiar verse from the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, he was talking about Jesus. He was talking about how God loved people so much that he wanted to deliver them from sin and deal decisively with sin. So he sent his son, who was uniquely qualified to step into our place, 
to go to the cross, to become sin, and to handle in himself, to take upon himself the penalty for that sin and die to destroy sin so that he could now triumph over sin. And that's the Colossians verse that that I almost referenced by mistake earlier, where Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So at the cross, Jesus dealt a decisive blow to sin. And of course, next week, we're going to talk resurrection, which demonstrated that sin no longer had power to destroy people. It couldn't destroy Jesus, and as our representative in the covenant, it can't destroy us when we trust in him. And we're going to talk resurrection, and all of that implies next week. But give thanks and rejoice and trust in him, because he's the one that delivers us from sin and gives us a new life the way he meant for us to live it. We'll talk resurrection when we get back together next week. I hope you'll join me again.